You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. You can open up your Bibles to the 39th Psalm if you don't have a Bible or ushers are coming up and down the aisle to take care of that for you. If you don't own a Bible, now you do. Or if you just need to borrow one because you left yours at home, it'll make a lot more sense. You'll be able to follow uh, along. Psalm 39. After reflecting on his Apollo 11 uh, mission to the moon in 1969, Neil Armstrong talked about uh, seeing Earth from space. And he said, it suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put up my thumb and shut my eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. Neil Armstrong in that moment experienced perspective, experienced the the ability to see the big picture, to view things with a rightful sense of proportion. At At the right distance, he was able to put things in perspective, the size of the earth in perspective to the size of the universe and the creation that surrounds it. Perspective is understanding the relative importance between one thing and another. What what Neil Armstrong experienced that day in July in 1969 is an experience that all of us desperately need. You see, we have an inherent problem as human beings to magnify the meaningless and and to shrink the significant. And to cast aside the crucial. We, we have this problem with perspective. We don't often view things in the right perspective. That's why songs like How Great Is Our God is so important for us to understand that God is great. That we are not. And that, that even though our trials may feel great or our temptation may feel great or our suffering may feel great, in proportion, in perspective, God is great. He is the name above all names that is worthy to be all praise. So maybe you're here today and you're in need of some perspective. Maybe you need to look at your relationships in light of the greatness of God. Maybe you, maybe you need to take a look at your work situation or your health crisis in proper perspective. Well, Psalm 39 is a prayer for perspective. And uh, I, I made a commitment uh, several years ago to preach through every psalm sequentially as it appears uh, in God's Word. And so last week we were in Psalm 38, and uh, this week we're in Psalm 39, and 
you can guess where we're going to be next week, uh, Lord willing. And uh, in the summer, this is a season where we are just reading through the Psalms sequentially over a number of years. I plan to be on har- at, here at, at Harvest Brampton uh, until I'm very old or until the Lord uh, takes me home. I'm hoping to get through all 150 with this congregation, Lord willing, not always in this place. Um, and that's something that we are excited about as a church. So as we jump into Psalm uh, 39, let me just uh, begin with prayer. So Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your presence that has been uh, uh, evident among us as we've been singing to you. And Lord, as we have lifted our voices to you, I pray now that we would indeed hear your voice and that as we, as we speak this prayer found in Psalm 39, as we make these words of Scripture our words, asking you to give us perspective, Lord, we pray that you would guide us by your Spirit and that we would hear your voice so that you could help us view things in proper proportion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The 39th Psalm begins by saying that it, it was written to the choir master, uh, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Uh, Jeduthun was, was one of three major worship leaders in the, um, uh, in the, uh, the ancient world. And so you might picture, you know, uh, Matt Redman, uh, Andy uh, Rozier, and Chris Tomlin. They would sort of be the, the three big people who are writing songs and leading songs these days. Well, back then it was Asaph who wrote a bunch of psalms in the Bible, and He-Man, that's a name, and, and Jeduthun. These were the th- they're mentioned in, in, in uh, of Second Chronicles chapter 25, rather First Chronicles chapter 25, and David appointed these guys to be the worship leaders in the nation of Israel. They were the ones who were writing the songs, who were composing the music and the songs that David wrote. He wanted Jeduthun to, to do the musical arrangement for this particular song. And then verses 1 to 3 describe the circumstances leading up to the prayer. It says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew Worse, my heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Then he's going to pray this prayer of perspective. He doesn't give us any details about why he's so stressed out. Why did he make this commitment not to say anything? Why was this fire burning inside? But really what he's doing poetically is he's drawing the reader in. He's saying, you, 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 you've got you've to be listening to what I'm about to say because it came out of a moment of sincere anguish in my soul. There was a fire burning inside. So verse 3 ends by saying, then I spoke with my tongue. Verse 4 begins, O Lord. There's a lesson in Psalm 39 that we find all over the Psalms is that when we are struggling, when there are enemies around us, he says that he's surrounded by the wicked in verse 1, the most important thing for us to do is not necessarily to speak to the wicked who are surrounding us, not necessarily, not necessarily to speak to our enemies to give them a piece of our mind to try to defend ourselves. No, not to speak to others, but to speak 
to him, to speak to the Lord, to use your energy in pouring your heart out before the Lord. And that's what David does because he said he didn't want to sin with his tongue. So then, then we are introduced to this prayer for perspective. Verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. A prayer for perspective is a prayer to understand some things. Here's the first one. If you're going to have perspective, it's crucial that you understand the brevity of life. The brevity of life. The understanding that life is brief. That life is short. That it's over before you know it. Look at the language in verse 4. My end, the measure of my days, that I am fleeting. The word fleeting it is translated in the New American Standard as transient. I'm here and then I'm gone. The King James translates it as frail. There, there is a, a, a weakness in us as humans. We are not here long. We are transient. We are weak. We are fleeting. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, you have made my days a few Handbreadths, units of measurement in uh, the ancient Near East, particularly in the nation of Israel, were, were really based around uh, body parts, at least the, the, small, the smaller measurements. You had a span, which is mentioned in Isaiah 40, which is the, the Lord measured out the heavens like a span. A span is a hand that is spread out wide, the distance from thumb to pinky finger, that is a, a span. A handbreadth is an even shorter unit of measurement. Just take, take your hand right now, tuck your thumb in, and put your four fingers together. Everyone do it, don't leave me hanging up here, okay? It's not some sort of strange Star Trek greeting. This is a handbreadth. And what the psalmist is saying is my life is just a few of these. You know, one, two, three, for give or take. That, that life in, 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 in comparison to the, the world around me, in, in comparison to eternity, in comparison to God, my life is just a few handbreadths, just, just maybe a foot and a half, just, 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 just a few inches of, of time that we have. He's praying for that kind of perspective. Now, if you go back to verse 4, if you look at the request, he says, O Lord, make me know. And then he says at the end of verse 4, let me know. He's not speaking from some sort of philosophical high ground, acting as though he already has perspective. No, he recognizes that he needs it. He's asking God to teach him. He's, he's not speaking from this plateau of wisdom saying, that, well, I know that life is short and so I'm a wise person. No, he's asking God to teach him and to show him these things. We desperately need to be seeking God's face so that he could teach us how short our life is so that we could have wisdom to face the trials that we face. Psalm 90 verse 12 says this in a, a more familiar way. Psalm 90 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Wisdom comes from knowing that our lives are short. Not just knowing, it, the, the handbreadth idea is not just to know that my life is short, but to understand your life in terms of handbreadth allows you to look at your life as a whole, not just as a collection of moments. And, and there is real wisdom in looking at your life as a whole, not just in a particular moment. You see, temptation and sin and foolishness wants us to think that the moment we're in is the only moment there is and the only moment that matters. If you struggle with anger, when you give in to those feelings of anger and begin to lose control of what you do with your body and what you say with your mouth, isn't it true that in that moment, the only moment you're thinking about is how upset you are right at that particular time? Is there no thought that you're gonna to have to re-drywall that wall before you punch it? No, you're not thinking about that moment. Is there any thought that you're going to have to look into the tearful eyes of a loved one and apologize for the things that you said? Are you thinking about that when you're saying those hurtful things? No, because you're not viewing your life in terms of a handbreadth. You're only looking at one moment. You're not looking at the whole thing. If you struggle with lust or sexual temptation, it is all about how you feel getting gratification in that particular moment, not thinking about the whole big picture, not thinking about how the proverb says, can you heap fire into your bosom and not get burned? Thinking that, you, that this is now, this is the particular moment, not thinking about the consequences in the future, the harm that you will do to others, the harm that you will do to yourself. Loved ones, we need to understand the brevity of life. Looking at, not just knowing that our life is short, but looking at our entire lives and looking down the road and saying, if I behave this way, what will happen in the future? So the, the brevity of life is an absolutely essential thing for us to understand, to have the right perspective in order to live with wisdom and to live with perspective. At the end of verse five, he says, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Remember, perspective is viewing things in, in, in relation to one another in proper proportion. My life, he says, my life is as nothing before you. You see, God is the key to getting perspective. It's when we compare our problems or our struggles or our fears or our insecurities or our lusts or our anger, when we view those things in comparison to who God is, that is where perspective comes from. To, to hold up our lives and what we're going through in light of who God is. The brevity of life compared to the eternal God who was eternally existent before the universe was created and who has always been there and, ha and has never changed. The brevity of life is so crucial. 
Then at the end of verse 5, he says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. A mere breath. True perspective comes when we understand that our life is a mere breath. Then it's followed by the Hebrew word selah. A selah is found all over the book of Psalms. The word selah means to lift up. And we're not sure why the word lift up just seems to randomly appear uh, in the book of Psalms. Chances are this is something that David, when he's giving an instruction to Jeduthun, he's saying, after these verses are sung, I want you to do something musically. So lift up might be, it might be like a rest in music. Remember the little rest sign? And so you're, you're playing along in your piano lessons and then you're told to rest. So you lift your hands up off the uh, keys. It might mean to lift up your voice to sing louder. Or it might mean that, that, that a key change is coming. Lift up the key. The, the, the point is when you see a sailor in the Psalms, it, there's supposed to be a moment of reflection just to sort of take a step back and really to get some perspective, to reflect on what was just said. So think about that. Our life is a breath. It, it, it's, it's, it's a moment. It, 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 it's a, a moment in time and we must make the most of it. We must view it as short. We must view it in its entirety because it's going to be gone before we know it. One of the most surprising things that I really didn't expect about being a pastor and one of the kind of awkward things about my job is I just, I find myself always reminding people that they're going to die. Um, I, I don't know what other job is, is like that. I mean, hey, we're all here having a great time. We sing some songs, but just remember, you're going to die. And, and that is something that I, that I have to do regularly because the Bible talks about it regularly. And do you understand that your life is a breath? That it's a few handbreadths, that it's going to be over before you know it. So, so think about it. it. It could be today. It's not easy saying this stuff, but, but, but someone has to. It's in God's word. Your life is short. Today could be your last day. Your family could be planning a funeral for you on Friday. Here's, here's, some, here's some questions to, to sort of reflect on. If your funeral were this Friday, are there any friends or family members that would think twice before they attended? In light of how your last conversation went with them, maybe that conversation was last week, maybe it was like five years ago. Will everyone be there in front of your casket? And this person, really, they should be a pallbearer. And right now, they, they're not even sure if it would be right for them to go. If that's the case for you, you need to fix that today. You need to, listen, Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. If it's their problem, it's their problem, but it better not be your problem. You need to do everything that you can do within your power because your life is short and you don't know when it ends. Also, if you were to die today, and as they're going through your things, would they find something in a closet or in a, an account somewhere? Would they, would they discover something on your computer or one of your devices? 
You see, you need to view your life as a whole. You need to understand that it's going to end someday. And you think, well, I can, I can wrap that up. I can end that whenever I want, or I'll just, I'll just deal with that later. Well, you need to deal with it now because your life is short. We, we need to live with this kind of perspective. Listen, I, I've only been talking about how people are going to respond to you after you die. There's a more important question because after, the Bible says, after death comes judgment. Are you ready to stand before God? Are you ready to give an account for your life before God? And let me give you a warning. If you are planning on coming with a list of your good deeds to try to outweigh your bad deeds, that is not going to work. Let me give you some pro bono theological legal counsel here. That is not how God's justice system works. Your only hope to face an eternal and holy God is placing your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he suffered and died for you on the cross, taking your sinful record and giving you his perfect record. That is the only defense Are you ready? Do you know that your life is short? Christopher Hitchens, who recently passed away after a life of trying to disprove Christianity and the Bible, had this to say about death. It will happen to all of us that at some point you'll get tapped on the shoulder and told not just that the party is over, but slightly worse, The party is going on, but you have to leave, and it's going on without you. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was a very intelligent uh, man, brilliant, really. But he's he's really missing the point here. You see, the truth is not that you're going to get tapped on the shoulder and that the party is going to keep going on, but you have to leave. The truth is, is there is an after party that's even better than this party. And are you ready for that? And are you living like that? That this is really just a preparation for something that is greater. There will be a party that goes on after this party. And are you ready to live for eternity? Are you ready to stand before God. The brevity of life, so important. Verse six, surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing, that word nothing there should have a footnote in your ESV. It's the same word as breath. So breath is mentioned in verse, uh, verse five, surely as nothing or surely as breath in verse six. They are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Listen, in light of the brevity of life, we need to understand the futility of greed. The futility of greed. He says it, he says it right there. Man heaps up wealth, but he does not know who will gather. It's all going into one of those big storage lockers and, and, and you have no idea eventually who's going to get to break the lock and take all of your stuff. 
That is the foolishness of how we so often live our lives. The reality is you can't take it with you to the afterlife. Someone so aptly said once that you, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You, 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 you can't take your worldly possessions and yet so much of our life, so much of our short little life is wasted on the pursuit of wealth. Jesus told a, a parable in Luke chapter 12. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. The party's going on. Enjoy the party. Not recognizing that there's a party after the party. But God said to him, here comes the tap on the shoulder. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's right from Psalm 39. Whose will they be? You're heaping up wealth. Who will shovel it away? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Loved ones, we need to understand the futility of greed. Not the futility of wealth, not the futility of money. Money itself is neutral, but to, folk, to greedily focus on it and pursue it and to make it an idol in your life that you worship the almighty dollar rather than the almighty God. There is futility that goes with that. It is pointless. It is empty. Then the turning point of the psalm, after this prayer for, prayer for perspective, understanding that life is short, understanding that you can't take wealth with you into the next life, the turning point is in verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. He's, he's been talking on a very general, a philosophical, um, analytical level, hasn't he? He's been talking about life in general. The lifespan of all human beings is very short and wealth is pointless. But he hasn't been talking about his own life. He hasn't been talking about his, his own wealth. But verse 7 is a turning point. He says, and now. You see, it's one thing to believe these things. It's one thing to be able to articulate it. It's one thing to be able to quote some Bible verses about wealth or about eternity. It's a whole other thing to actually live it in the here and now. So he says, and now, in this moment, he says, for what do I wait? What am I looking for to rescue me? It's not my riches. He says, my hope is in you. That's where his hope is found. That is the third point that we'll need to have if we're going to have perspective. It's the brevity of life, the futility of greed, and lastly, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, trusting and believing that God is the one who is in control. Verse eight, deliver me from all my transgressions, 
Do not make me the scorn of a fool. If life is short and if God is all that matters, then dealing with our sin is of the most important priority in our lives. It is the most urgent thing on our to-do list. If Psalm 39 so far is true, that our life is short and that wealth doesn't mean anything, then what matters most is how we deal with our sin. If our hope is in God, then we need to understand what is separating us from having God in our lives, and it is our sin. So he calls out for mercy, deliver me from all my transgressions. And then he says, do not make me the scorn of the fool. One of the consequences for our sin is, we talked about this last week in Psalm 38, is that other people like to share their opinions or their judgments about how we have failed in our lives. And that's just a consequence. And he's praying for mercy that he wouldn't experience that consequence, that the, the voices, the, the, the criticism would cease. Notice how it says the scorn of the fool. It doesn't say the scorn of the wise. You see, the fool is the one who always says, oh yeah, I can't believe he did that. I would never do that. That's absolutely foolish and ridiculous. What a loser. That's what fools say. The wise person says, there but by the grace of God go I. Apart from God's mercy and protection and provision in my life, I would find myself in the same situation, if not worse. It's never the scorn of the wise. The wise don't scorn because the wise are wise because they fear God. They're not wise in their own eyes like the fool is who can scorn whoever they want and criticize and backbite and be an armchair quarterback and a pundit and say, this is how it should go or this is, this is what they should have done. That's not wise. That's what a fool does. Are you that kind of a fool? Are you someone who scorns other people when they fail or they demonstrate their frailty? Or are you like a wise person who knows that apart from God's grace in your life, you would find yourself in the exact same situation. Verse 9, even though he is getting scorned, he says, I'm mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. He knows that God is working in his life. He knows that God is sovereign. And the hardship that he's experiencing, he's saying to God, you have done it. You brought this on my life in order to bring it, in order to, for me to bring my life back to you. Verse 10, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin. So he's under the hand of discipline of God. He's, he's, he's saying, deliver me from my transgressions. And he, God has been disciplining him. Like we talked about last week, it's, it's good guilt guides us to God. There's experiences in his life that are causing him to view, no, my life is short. I can't go on living like this. And I've been living in, in contradiction to how God wants me to live. So now he's trying to make things right. But the discipline of the Lord is so heavy on him. He says, when you, in verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. He doesn't consume his son or his daughter. The, the discipline, God doesn't consume us. 
but he consumes those things that are dear to us. He consumes those things that are idols in our lives. Now remember earlier in the psalm he was talking about wealth, wasn't he? And now here's a reference to moths destroying things. Well, it's just like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So this psalmist had some sort of uh, wealth that was stockpiled up and, and he's seeing it dwindle down as part of God's discipline because he was worshiping money rather than God. Then in verse 11, surely all mankind is a mere breath, Selah. The end of verse 11 is almost word for word with the end of verse 5. A mere breath and then Selah, that opportunity to lift up, to take a break, to soak in what God has been trying to say to us, to, to respond to his word. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. This is, again, perspective. He sees himself as a sojourner, as a guest. We're, we're, we're not owners, we're renters here. This, this world is not our home, this world is our hotel. And, and you, don't, you don't set up shop like you're going to permanently live in a hotel. It's a, it's a temporary residence. You don't get out your, your drill and, 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 your, and your pictures and start hanging them around the hotel room like it's, like it's going to be permanent. It's perspective, knowing that we're only here for a short period of time. And he says, like my fathers, referring back to all of the, the people who have gone before him. He's been living for the things of this world and now he needs to be reminded that this world is not his home. Then verse 13, I think is really one of the reasons why we don't hear a lot of sermons on Psalm 39. Everyone always says, oh yeah, I love the Psalms, I love the Psalms, but no one really loves Psalm 39, 13. And this is one of the things that our our elders are passionate about is preaching the whole counsel of God. This is one of the reasons why we're going through the Psalms sequentially is because we preach Psalms that normally don't get preached and we preach verses that normally don't get preached. They don't get a lot of airplay. They don't, like Psalm 40, the next Psalm is very popular. You could Google Psalm 40, you'd find hundreds of sermons. Google Psalm 39 on Monday, you might find one from Harvest Brampton. Verse 13, he says, look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart, and man no more. It's, it's not so much what verse 13 says, but it's the fact that it's at the end of the psalm. 
There's other verses like that in the Psalms, but normally it's somewhere at the beginning or somewhere at the middle, where, and then, it, then there's, there's a change where he gets filled with faith and courage and he says, Lord, you're my rock and my salvation and I can do anything. But this Psalm ends with, with, a, with his final prayer request for God to look away from him. You see, this psalm is, is more like, if it, it fits more in the book of Job than it does in the book of Psalms. You see, the Bible has all kinds of different books. It has all kinds of different literature. It has all kinds of different themes. That's why it's so good that you can read the Bible through and learn all of these different things about the human experience. And you can turn to certain passages at certain times. And it has special meaning to you because of what you're going through. And so verse 13 sounds like it's right out of the book of Job, this idea of, of turn away from me, that, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is what Job says in the middle of Job, Job 10. He says, are not my days few? Then cease, this is a prayer, he says, and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. You see, again, it's in the middle of Job, and there's a resolution at the end of Job, and there's sort of a happily ever after, but Psalm 39 is written for the people who are feeling so defeated and so discouraged and are so desperately in need of perspective, it feels like the darkness won't lift. They're, they're waiting for for the, for, the, for the dramatic change. They're waiting. But the psalm ends in a minor key. The psalm ends really with this poetic dissonance. It, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, one second he's crying out to God, hear me, answer me, be close to me. And then, and then his last words are, and, and just stay away from me. The, the two things don't seem to go together. And I, I think that's what's beautiful about this psalm, and I think that's what's beautiful about the Bible, is that sometimes life just doesn't make sense. And sometimes, even if we believe it will ultimately work out in eternity, when we go to the after party, we feel like the party is over here on earth, and there's no hope for joy or peace or contentment. Now we can read verse 13 in light of other psalms. Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But those are other psalms. Psalm 39 ends like this. Ends by saying, before I depart and I am no more. Bruce Waltke, who is a brilliant Old Testament scholar, wrote an essay on Psalm 39, and this is how he reflected on the final verse. He says, 
after seeking forgiveness from the Lord, David petitions the Lord to turn his holy gaze away from him, unable to stand under the scrutiny of his holy gaze. David wants it both ways, and the tension is unsustainable. This tension between seeking divine presence and distance is shattered on the cross where Jesus suffers complete abandonment when God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and members of the covenant community would stand in the Lord's presence without fear, clothed in Christ's righteousness. David is writing this psalm, suffering for his own sin, wanting to be near to God and distant from God because of his sin. Jesus suffered not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And him who never knew anything but nearness to God in that moment on the cross experienced distance from God. So if you're living in verse 13 right now, you need to know that you're in good company. The, the King David is, went through a similar circumstance to, to what you are going through and that Jesus Christ went through what you are going through and went through it for you to stand in your place. You see, the one who could truly blot out the earth with his thumb, surrendered his hand to cruel nails on the cross. And even though David asked the father to look away from him, the father never stopped looking at David. But the father, when Christ was on the cross, stopped looking at his son. And because the Father didn't look at Christ on the cross. He now looks at us, not as objects of wrath to be scrutinized and punished, but objects of love to be sanctified and cherished. And that, loved ones, is where true perspective comes from. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in Jesus' name asking for perspective. God, there are some of us who are just going through life day by day, not contemplating life's meaning or significance or its brevity. God, I pray that you would give us proper perspective, God. I pray that you would help us to view this world with lenses that see through the here and now and on into eternity and beyond. God, I pray that you would wake us up, that you would give us that much-needed perspective. But God, I want to pray right now, especially for those dear brothers and sisters who are here right now, who who are wondering if the darkness will ever lift, who are wondering if, if the victory will ever be won, who are struggling to hold on to hope. God, I, I pray 
that you would draw near to them. I pray for a glimmer of light, God, to shine in their lives, that it would eventually flood every dark corner of their existence, that the light of your presence and your love, your kindness, your goodness, your power, Lord God, would be infused into their life, God, that you would speak to them, that they would know that your eyes are on them, that you love them, and that you will carry them through. God, only you can do that. God, give us the patience to wait on you to give us perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.